And now this morning, we begin our study in the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. I'm not going to have you turn to Isaiah yet. I'm going to have you turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 12. Genesis, chapter 12. I'm excited to embark on another study of a book of the Bible. This time we're moving the, from, the old, uh, from the New Testament, the book of James, which we've been in for a number of months. Uh, we're moving now to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah. 66 chapters. It is a dynamic book. It is full, and, and, uh, and it's going to bring to us a gigantic picture of Jesus. I can't even explain enough what kind of picture we get of Jesus. We don't just get the suffering servant, but we get the servant coming in power and great glory. Um, so much will, will point to Jesus and his ministry. But before we get into the book of Isaiah, and we begin to get application for our church age, I do, I do want you to remember a few things. First of all, the church is a mystery. In the Old Testament, the church was a mystery. Meaning, it was a truth, but it was hidden in the Old Testament Nobody in the Old Testament understood that there would be Jews and Gentiles coming together to be one body of Christ with leadership, with spiritual gifts being used to the edification of the body, and that the church, Jew and Gentile, in one body would be going out as proclaimers of the gospel to all the world. They didn't know that in the Old Testament. They had no idea. They, had a, they have a different picture in the Old Testament. This, what we're living in now called the church age, where we meet regularly for corporate worship and for building one another up in the faith. Again, it was a divine mystery. It was hidden, but then now in the New Testament it's been revealed. But even then, this is just a short parenthesis in all of God's plan. God is going to remove the church off of this earth, and he's going to resume his plan for Israel, and he's going to bring a consummation of all things. Isaiah gives us this whole picture. He's not talking about the church, although we're going to find a lot of application with Israel's behavior with the church. So we will be able to make great application throughout the whole book. But what I want you to see is this great hope of God's ultimate victory in this world. Sometimes we seem defeated and we can be downcast and discouraged because it seems like nothing is happening. But just like Isaiah, I want to put before you this vision of God that is gigantic in its proportions, that God has a plan for all the nations of the earth, he has a plan for Israel, he has a plan for the church, and he will bring it all, come to, he will bring it all to come about. All we have to do is trust. We have to depend upon him and wait patiently for his coming. So I'm excited. This is going to be a, a great opportunity to learn a lot of Old Testament history and to get a lot of things put into perspective of God's great plan for the redemption of mankind. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our study this morning as we set the background and the setting of this book of Isaiah. We begin to understand your working in the Old Testament, your ultimate goal of all things, and of course, the important person, the, the God-man Jesus Christ. Help us to love the Lord and have such a devotion for him that we would see greater things of him and greater things for Israel in the future and that we would rightly see our place in history and be fulfilling our responsibility as a church. Thank you again for the whole counsel of God which inspires and teaches and exhorts us to godly behavior. And I pray that we would grow much as a church during this time. Thank you for your plan of, of salvation that has been realized in our life, but also the ultimate restoration of all things, this cursed earth, Israel as a nation, and all the Gentile nations giving honor and glory to you as King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you, Father, so much for this book and for what we are about to study. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. 
All right, I have you in the book of Genesis right now, and I have you in Genesis chapter 12. On the back side, though, of your outline, if you take a look at the back side of your outline, you'll see a little, a little display or a little graph of God's plan for this world. And I want to make sure that you and I are on the same page before we get into Isaiah, because Isaiah will give us much about a kingdom, and we need to understand the kingdom that is about to come. God created the heavens and the earth in six literal days, 24-hour days. On the sixth day, he fashioned Adam and Eve. He fashioned Adam out of the dust of the ground, and then Eve out of Adam's side. But in Genesis chapter 1, listen everybody, God gave Adam his responsibility. His responsibility on this earth was to subdue all creation and have dominion over all the fish, all the birds, and all the cattle. Everything that God created was to come under the dominion and the authority of Adam. Adam was like a vice regent. God, the master and the sovereign one of all, the Lord of all, and And Adam was simply one man underneath God that was caring for all of creation. His goal and responsibility was to bring all creation to the glory of God. That everything would shout and echo the praises of God. Now, we know that there was a condition and a test, and it was Adam could not eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. If he eats the fruit of that tree, in that day he would surely die. So do you understand Adam's responsibility? And do you also see as sinful humanity what we've tried to do? We have tried to subdue the earth, haven't we? Tried to subdue the earth and the oceans. We're trying to subdue outer space, walking on the moon, trying to, to get to Mars, and we're trying to subdue everything around us. What do we do in our houses? We put um, nice lights and we bring plants into our house. We almost try to make our house like a little Garden of Eden because built in us is this necessity to subdue and to have dominion over all things. Why do we have zoos? So we can have dominion over creatures and we can walk around even though they're protected behind bars. We still feel like we have some control over them. But let them out of the cage and we are in serious trouble, right? Adam had the responsibility to bring in this perfect creation everything to God's glory and honor. But he failed. He failed by eating the fruit of the tree. The day he ate it, he began to physically die. And it took 950-some years to physically die, but eventually he did. But at that moment, when he ate the fruit, he spiritually died. He had no relationship with God. In order to have relationship with God, it had to be by faith in a coming Redeemer. So God said to Adam and Eve, God said, the seed of the woman will crush the devil's head. Because you see what happened was, when Adam lost his ability to, to have dominion over all the earth, Satan got it. Satan, in 2 Corinthians 4, is called the god of this age. He is the god of this empire called planet earth. And it's given by permission of God, but he received it because Adam failed in his duties. So Satan is the god of this age. Satan is also, Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air. The word air being like the tops of the mountains. This right here is Satan's dominion. So when he's, te- when he's tempting Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 4, he offers to Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth because they're his. This is his dominion, and we are living. Listen, church, we are living in enemy territory. Do you agree? We are behind the, lo- the front lines. We are already deep into Satan's territory. He is seeking to devour us and destroy us. What are we trying to do? We're trying to go against him by proclaiming the good news of Jesus everywhere we can. So there's a great spiritual battle going on. So Satan gained this dominion that Adam lost. Listen, everybody, we need one man. We need, because God gave the responsibility to man. We need a man of our, of our kind to be able to be raised up without sin, 
that could do what Adam failed to do. We need somebody that can take this whole creation, bring it into, sub, into, into dominion and subduing it to the glory of God the Father. We need one man who can rise up out of the, the loins of mankind who could actually take the kingdom back from Satan, show that he can rule it absolutely perfect without falling into sin, and then when, when it's over, he can take this whole kingdom and turn it over to God the Father. Isn't that exciting? We have that man. Who is he? Jesus Christ. This man, the one that we need, is Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin without sin. The virgin had sin. Mary was a sinner. But Jesus was born without sin. He is the one that will rise up someday, and he will bring about a kingdom here on this earth. It's going to be a phenomenal kingdom. He will be the king of kings. He will rule with absolute righteousness. There will be a spiritual aspect. There will be a physical aspect to this kingdom. It's going to take place right here on this planet. And he will show that, yes, a man, but it's going to be God in the flesh, a man can fully follow God, subdue and have dominion over all creation for God's honor and glory. Now, once that's over, all of this merges into an eternal state where you and I will live with Jesus forever. But until then, many things have to happen. It's going to be an incredible journey. A very incredible journey in our future. All right, so that kind of sets the stage. We see that Adam was given dominion, and he lost it. Satan gained it. Jesus is going to get it back from the devil, and he's going to rule as king of this planet, king of Israel over all the nations. But now, for 2,000 years, Adam and Eve had children, and they had children, and they had children, and they had children, and they were guided by their conscience. They were guided by what seems to be right, what might not be right. Their conscience many times accused them of sin and many times excused them from sin. So man became extremely depraved in their thought. I mean, totally depraved. But Genesis 6 says that every thought of mankind was evil continually. All man could do in those first thousand years after creation was sin and get away with it and seek to get away with it. And so they loved their selfish pleasures and their selfish pursuits. They were all into all sorts of wickedness and sin. And finally, God said, I have to destroy the earth with a flood. Of course, there were Nephilim in that day, I believe fallen angels cohabitating with daughters of men, forming this, trying to destroy the line of Christ so Jesus could never be born. But we won't get into all of that. But ultimately, God sent a flood, and the flood destroyed all mankind except eight people. Noah, his wife, three sons, and their three wives. Eight people and animals survived on this ark, and the ark, and now they were to, to populate the earth one more time. God knew he cannot work with all nations because mankind will just rebel and reject him over and over and over again. So God said after 2,000 years, I've worked with all nations, and I, I'm not going to do that anymore. Now I'm going to work with one man, and of one man, I'm going to make a great nation. And this nation is going to be given some promises, and out of this nation will rise the one man who will take the kingdom back from Satan and establish it for the glory of God. So this is the story of Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. God said to Abraham when Abraham was 75 years old, Genesis chapter 12, God said, get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. Notice the word land. Abraham's first promise was a promise of land, of a land. So God said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land that I will show you. 
Number, look at verse 2. I will make you a great nation. Okay, right now Abraham is a married man, but no children. 75 years old. No children. But God said, Abraham, I promise, I'm going to make you a great nation. Well, what does a nation have to have? People. Abraham, I'm going to make you a nation with many, many, many people. So the second promise, physical descendants. God guaranteed to Abraham a land, a piece of property on planet Earth. He guaranteed to Abraham physical descendants, although Abraham was childless. And then he says this, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The third promise, spiritual blessings. This nation that God was going to establish would become the nation chosen by him out of all not because of their goodness, but because of his grace. And three promises would be given to this nation. First of all, they would have property on planet Earth. He even defines the property lines for us. Secondly, they will have physical descendants forever on this Earth. And thirdly, spiritual blessings will be given to them and will flow from them to all the world. Now, this nation that Abraham is going to establish, called Israel, I want you to take your Bibles, go with me to Genesis 13. Go over a chapter to, verse thir- to chapter 13. Look at what God says to Abra- Abram in verse 14. Genesis 13, 14. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are. Abram's standing in the promised land, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants for how long? Forever, which means the land that Abraham was living in, Israel, belongs to them forever. It does not belong to the Palestinians. It does not belong to the Arabs. It belongs to the Jewish descendants of Abraham forever. He goes on and he says this, verse 16, I will make your descendants. Remember, Abraham has no children at this time. There's his promise of descendants again. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. So what are the things that God is going to promise to Abram unconditionally? It is land, a land, number one. Number two, physical descendants as the dust of the earth. And number three, spiritual blessings. Go with me to chapter 15. Abram knows he has no children. And in order to have a great nation, he has to have a child. So he's beginning to wonder, maybe my servant... My servant, Eliezer of Damascus, will have a child, and that will be the son of promise. God said, no, don't do that. Instead, verse 5, look at Genesis 15, verse 5. He brought him outside and said, look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to number them. And God said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So there again, you see the promise of descendants that would be as the stars of the sky or as the dust of the earth. Now, here's the story of the rest of chapter 15, and for the sake of time, I need to condense this. What ended up happening is Abram, God told Abram to get some sacrifices, some animal sacrifices, and he cut the animals in two, right in half, and he laid them aside. He put half the animals right here in a row, and then he put half the animals right here in a row, but the birds he didn't cut in half. He just put them on the sides. So now there's, there's an aisle, and between the aisle is made up of dead animals cut in half. This is a covenant. 
There were different levels of covenant in Israel. There was the salt covenant. If I made an agreement with Bing about something, we covenanted together. I would take some salt out of my pouch and I'd put it in his pouch of salt because we all carried salt pouches back then. And if the, the covenant was binding until I could separate all the salt that I gave him out of his thing. If I could get all my salt back, the covenant's broken. It could be broken. It'd be very, very hard, but it could be broken. There was another level of covenant. And this level of covenant then gets, gets harder. There was the sheep and, and the sheep covenant. And it was the idea of, if I made an agreement with somebody, I would give them some sheep. And I could break that covenant if I could get my sheep back. The problem is, the sheep would interbreed, and pretty soon you've got many sheep having, you know, you know what I'm saying? Now all of a sudden there's many sheep that, are, that could be partially mine, and you could never get them all back. So that was a very binding contract, but also, again, it was a covenant that could be broken. But this unconditional covenant, this covenant was amazing because the strongest covenant was when you cut an animal in half, and if the two halves could come back together and fly away or walk away, you could break the covenant. Well, of course, that could never happen because these animals are dead and split in two. And then normally, two people would walk side by side through these dead animals, and you'd be making a covenant saying, I will hold up to my part of the bargain, and the other person says, I will hold up to my part of the bargain. So two people would walk down an aisle, kind of like marriage, a marriage covenant. You have two people walking down an aisle together to make a covenant on each side. They kind of have their own family as witnesses. It kind of all testifies to a covenant ceremony. It's very, very special. But in this case, Abram falls asleep. He is in a deep, deep sleep. He cannot get up and walk. Instead, he sees a smoking oven and a torch walking down the aisle. Well, that's God. Abram knows God is making a covenant with me that is unconditional. No matter how I behave, no matter how my children behave, God has promised land, physical descendants, and spiritual blessings no matter what. God will not break his promise. God alone walked through those cut animals, saying that he will fulfill his promise to Abram no matter what. Okay, do you see the importance of chapter 15? Regardless of what we do, regardless of how Israel behaves, Israel has to have a land, and the land has to go from the Nile to the Euphrates. Secondly, they have to have physical descendants on the earth. And thirdly, God has to bless them spiritually. He has to. Now, listen, those three promises of Abram were never realized in Abram's life. As a matter of fact, to this day, they've never been realized. That kingdom that was offered or promised to Abram, listen, 2,000 years later, Jesus, the king, shows up, and what does he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I do believe and I could go through this with you in detail, I do believe the kingdom Jesus offered was that earthly, physical kingdom that was promised to Abram. I believe that when Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, I think he was saying, I am your king. If you believe me, we can start this kingdom right now. But what happened? They didn't believe Jesus. Instead of receiving him as their king, they crucified him and therefore allowing salvation to be spread to all mankind. So salvation now has been, been bought and purchased for all mankind. But the kingdom is still coming. Right now we're in the church age, this big parenthesis, but there is coming a day when Israel will be in their land with the proper boundaries, with full spiritual blessings, 
and Jesus will be sitting on their throne, on that throne. It's going to be a phenomenal day. So when Isaiah begins, he lets the nation know this kingdom is coming. There is great hope because God is victorious no matter what. You must trust God. And do you know what Israel did when Isaiah preached? They said, we don't want to trust God. We would rather trust Assyria. We would rather trust Egypt than go to God. God said, you have to believe in me or the kingdom can never be established. Now, there will be a generation of Jewish people that will believe in the Messiah and they will be given the millennial kingdom. It will last a thousand years here on this earth. And this is what's promised to Abraham in Genesis 12, 13, 15, and 17. But now I want you to take a look at some details of the covenant. Because to understand Isaiah, you have to understand what God was actually promising. Take your Bibles. Go with me to Deuteronomy 28. The book of Deuteronomy 28. These are some chapters you can just, I would encourage you to study over and over and over again. Deuteronomy 28. These are promises to Israel, not the church. We don't get these promises. As a matter of fact, God never said we get land on this earth. He never said he promised us physical descendants, although we do have spiritual blessings. Ephesians 1 says we have spiritual blessings in heavenly places. We have such great reward, but it's not the same as Abraham's promise. All right, Deuteronomy 28. These three chapters, 28, 29, and 30, they are a must-read for you. You should read them over and over. Here's Here's what the Bible says. And by the way, 28, 29, and 30 of Deuteronomy amplifies the land promise. God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. This amplifies the promise. It tells us exactly what's going to happen. Here it is, Deuteronomy 28. It shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you on high above all nations of the earth. All right, so there's the promise. If Israel obeys God, they will be able to have this kingdom. By the way, the kingdom is unconditional, meaning they're not going to ever lose it. God will give it. But the, the generation that receives it, they have to have faith in God. And that's the, that's the illustration of this chapter. Um, God is going to make Israel high above all the nations. Verse 2, All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city. Blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, the increase of your herds, the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of all your flocks. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before, you, before your face. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. Going on and on and on. Okay, do you understand? If Israel follows the Lord by faith, God will bless their land. He will bless them militarily. He will bless them in their houses, their flocks, their, their fields. Everything will be just bountiful. But... Look at verse 15. But it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord to observe carefully all his commandments. Verse 16. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of the body, of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flocks. If they don't have faith in the Lord, God will curse them. And he says, ultimately, I will scatter you out of your land. I will kick you out of your promised land. So he makes a promise to Abram and says, Abram, I'm going to give your children this land. If they love me and have faith in me, I will bless them beyond measure. If they reject me and follow other gods, 
I will curse them and hurt them. I will take their children captive, sending other nations to, to destroy them. And ultimately, I will scatter them over all the earth. But now, go with me to chapter 30. I, I just ask you to read those on your own. There's so much detail there. Look at Deuteronomy 30. Now it shall come to pass, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. All right, listen. Where has Israel been the last 2,000 years? They've been scattered over all the world. They've been, in, they've been all across Europe. They've been in the United States. They've been in Mexico. They've been all across Asia. They've, the Jewish people have been scattered for 2,000 years all over the world. Towards the end of the 1800s, they began to regather. Under Theodore Herzl and the Zionist movement, they began to regather, and they landed right back in their same land that God gave to Abram. The exact same land. Jewish people, for 2,000 years, Go, everywhere in the world, have now begun to come back to the one land, this land of Israel. God says, verse 2, chapter 30, And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. That has not happened. According to all that I command you today, you and your children, with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity, that's what he's doing, and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you, any of you are driven into the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you in the land which your fathers possessed. That's the land that God promised Abram. And you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart. That means salvation. They'll believe in him. And the heart of your descendants. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. That's spiritual blessings. So you have land, spiritual blessing. You have all of those promises. Here, you know what Isaiah is saying to the people? When we get into the study of the chapters of Isaiah, he's saying, listen, people, God has promised you that if you follow him, if you have faith in him, if you trust him and no one else, then God will bless you and he will take care of you and he'll make you the great nation that you need to be. But if you reject him, God will take you captive and scatter you over all the earth. They had two choices. What did they choose? They chose to follow other gods and reject the one true God, and God scattered them over all the earth. But then Isaiah said, this is going to be painful because it will hurt your families. It will hurt your dinner tables. It will hurt your future generations. But God is faithful, and he will give you this kingdom that he promised Abraham, and this kingdom will be the great kingdom. And you, Israel, will be a mighty nation again. And you will have a righteous king, the Messiah, sitting on the throne. That is the promise. So Isaiah, on one hand, gives great judgment about their immorality. These, these Israelites were changing light for darkness. They, they would do wicked things and say, this will honor the Lord. They, they were very immoral people. And Isaiah said, if you don't change your ways and turn back to God... He will scatter you over all the earth. But someday, he's going to bring you back into the land, and you will be a great nation someday again. Your generation won't experience it, but some generation of Jewish people will. And that's going to happen in our future. We don't know what generation of Jewish people will get the land, but it is coming. That land promise is still, is, is still there for Israel. All right, so read and study those, those two chapters. I'm going to give you one more. Go to Second Samuel 
chapter 7. I put 1 Samuel in your notes. I'm sorry. It's 2 Samuel chapter 7. And we'll do this quickly, and then we'll finish the third point tonight. Because we still need to talk about the background of the political scene to understand why, why Isaiah preaches like he does. But go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. God promised land to Abraham, but he also promised physical descendants. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we get the, the physical descendants amplified to a great degree. And for the sake of time, I'll paraphrase this. David, the greatest king of Israel now. Saul was the first king. He was a failure. David of the tribe of Judah, a great king. So here he is. He's had victory over all the enemy. He's been very prosperous. And he's sitting in his own beautiful paneled house. And one night he's looking around saying, wow, look at everything I have. It's a beautiful house. God is dwelling down there in a tent. How come I'm living in a great house and God is living in a tent, a tabernacle? So he called his prophet. He said to the prophet, I'm going to build God a house. I'm going to make him a gorgeous house, beautiful cedar house. And the prophet said, go, David, and do all that's in your heart. So David went to sleep, thinking he was going to get to work to build God a house. And the, the Lord spoke to the prophet that night and said, no, David cannot build me a house. So then the, the prophet went to David the next day. Look at 2 Samuel 7. He goes on. Um, he goes on, and look at verse um, 12. Uh, verse 11. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest over all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. That's the key. David said, I want to build God a house. God turned around that night and said to the prophet, No, tell David he cannot build me a house. I'm going to build David a house. Not a physical house with more windows and couches and kitchens. God is going to build David a house in the sense of a genealogy. A house is a genealogy. David is going to have a son who will sit on the throne as king of of Israel. That son will have a son. That son will have a son. And they'll keep having children who will sit on the throne of David. But there is coming a day when somebody from the tribe of David, from the tribe of Judah, the line of David, he will be born. And here's what God says. Verse 12, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. So there's going to be a child of David who actually, the great, 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 great ancestor is David. And his kingdom shall be established. He he shall build a house for my name. That's going to be Solomon, the next one. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the blows of the sons of men. But he will not take away the promise. He will chasten them, the king though. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I removed from before you. Listen to this, verse 16. And your house, David, and your kingdom shall be established, how long? Forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. God said to David, a child of yours will be raised up. He will sit on the throne of Israel forever and forever. See, this is what we want. Israel needs to have a land. That's already promised in Deuteronomy 30. They will return and they will get the land. 2 Samuel 7 God says, you will have descendants forever, and one of your descendants will be able to be fit. 
he will be fit to sit on a throne, and he will sit on the throne forever and forever. Now, this is what makes it great. The angel Gabriel comes to uh, Mary in Nazareth, this little virgin girl, maybe 13 years old, maybe 14, and the angel Gabriel shows up to Mary and says, Mary, you're going to conceive and have in you a baby boy, and this boy is going to be of, the, of your father, David. He will sit on your father's throne forever. As soon as the angel said that to Mary, what did Mary know? This promise of 2 Samuel 7 is in my womb. The baby is now born. Who is it? It's Jesus. So do you see the promise to Abram is a land, and then it's, it's a king. It's, a, it's descendants, and one of those descendants will be a king who will sit forever. We'll do the rest of it tonight. It's hard to break that in the middle. But the third one is spiritual blessings because this Messiah will bring spiritual healing to all who believe. Great spiritual blessings. Now, you know what Isaiah does? Isaiah says, listen, everybody, your land is going to be decimated and destroyed, but someday God will restore it. Secondly, there is going to be a child born of Israel who will rise up and be the greatest king of this world. Nobody knew his name, but we know him to be Jesus. And his death will bring all who believe eternal life. This is what Isaiah says in his prophecy. It is phenomenal. And plus, as we read it, you'll see time after time how applicable it is. Do you want to see how applicable Isaiah is? Just go with, I know, we're just running a little bit out of time, but look at Isaiah 1, just quickly. I'll tell you how how much application we can get just out of a couple verses. Isaiah chapter 1. Because I want to give you some application today. Now that you have a little bit of background to what Isaiah is working with, Isaiah chapter 1, listen to verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. It's a trial. God is the judge. He's calling all the heavens and all the earth to listen. He wants them to, to, be, to be witnesses of this. And you know who's on the stand? Who's guilty? It's Israel is guilty. Look at what he says. I have nourished and brought up children. Those are the children of Israel. And they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not consider. Do you see what God is saying? He's saying, I, these are my children, my chosen nation, with all the promises of Abram that, I've give, that I'm giving them. And yet, an ox, an ox goes into the barn and immediately knows its master. What does the master do for an ox? Give a little bit of hay, a little bit of grass maybe, and maybe, I don't know, what else do you do to take care of an ox? You feed it, right? If, if all you do is feed the ox and the ox knows its master, that is just some natural gratitude that an animal has for its master who does very little. A donkey. A donkey comes to its crib to eat food, and it's just grateful for the food. It's grateful for the master, and all the master's done is given the donkey a little bit of food. It's kind of like our pets. You know what we do for our pets? Our two dogs? Uh, we water them. Well, we don't water them. We give them water to drink, and we give them food. That is it. We, we walk them a little bit, but that's it. But do you know, when we come home, they are so responsive to us. They jump at us, and they, they want to be with us. And we give so little attention to them. Here is our God, who has died for us and given so much attention to us. He's given us eternal life in all things. Do we ever respond to him with less affection than a pet? We should know our master, Jesus. We should love him. Our whole heart should be, whatever you say, Lord, I will do. 
however you want me to live, however you want me to think, whatever you want me to do with my, my whole life, it is yours because you are my master. But we often show so little natural gratitude to the Lord. We take him for granted when even our domesticated pets treat their masters better than we treat God. That's the idea that Isaiah is saying. Sometimes in the church, we can come into church and sing songs and read our Bibles with less knowledge and affection and thought than our cats or our dogs when we go home today. And God would look and say, I am just ashamed that my children would treat me like that. So there's great application even just in our worship that we want to be devoted to the Lord, have full hearts for him, like, he's all that matters to us. All that matters is my Savior. Nothing else. That's what he wants from us. So think about that. Sometimes our pets treat us, masters, better than we, the children of God, treat our Savior. That's a heavy one. Well, let's thank the Lord for our time here. Thank you, Father, for just giving us a little bit of background to Isaiah, that there is this kingdom of Israel that was promised, and it is going to come true, But the people that Isaiah are dealing with, they are rebellious. They don't want anything to do with you. And yet you're promising them a land and a king, a righteous, godly king, um, and a kingdom with spiritual blessings beyond measure. But the people had no vision for it. They couldn't see it. Rather, they rebelled against you, and they trusted themselves. They trusted their pleasures and other nations rather than turning to you. Help us, Father, to learn much about our relationship with you as a church but also the future plans that you have for all of us. Thank you so much for uh, being gracious and also unconditional in your promises. And I pray that we would respond with great love and devotion, more than our pets respond to us, that we would be wholehearted sons and daughters of yours, loving you with all of our hearts. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen. All right, so tonight we'll continue on some background. I'll give you the third point of the Abrahamic promise, and then uh, we'll look at the the, uh, Syria and Egypt issue, and then we'll get started in the chapter.